Hello, and welcome to Introducing Me. I'm your host, Sarah. I started this podcast to get to know other people and lifestyles while discovering more about myself. Each episode, I will give a new guest a chance to discuss their background, culture, interests, or whatever they want to talk about to help increase all of our own worldviews. Today, I would like to introduce you to Chris Furr. He has been in congregational ministry for more than 15 years, and he is an author of the book, Straight White Male, A Faith-Based Guide to Deconstructing Your Privilege and Living with Integrity. So he's here to talk a little bit about himself, his book, kind of his journey to where he is today. So thank you so much, Chris. Why don't you go ahead and tell us a little bit more about yourself? Oh, well, thanks for having me, Sarah. I appreciate the opportunity to, to talk a little and uh, share a little about the book. So I, I um, have been in in ministry my whole professional career. Uh, my mom says that I, I started articulating that as a, a calling by around the age 15. I don't remember that that way, uh, but she's probably right. Moms usually are. So, you know, early on, I, I had this this desire to, to be in community with other people, to be in, in a field that helps other people, helps um impact other people's lives. And so I grew up in, in Wilmington, North Carolina, which is on the coast of, of North Carolina, about an hour north of Myrtle Beach, if people know where, where Myrtle Beach is, or if they've seen One Tree Hill, they may also know Wilmington. That's where One Tree Hill was filmed. So that was my, my hometown. It's my parents' hometown. It's my grandparents' hometown. So we have uh, a lot of roots in that uh, part of the country. And so that's where I grew up and grew up uh, going to church, part of a healthy church community with uh, good role models as the pastors there. And so I grew up there and uh, went to college at UNC in Chapel Hill as a religious studies major and with the intention of, of going into ministry. That was a, you know, a religious studies major at a state sponsored university is not Sunday school. You know, it's not a faith based curriculum. It's, you know, religious history and critical learning about New Testament as a piece of history and a piece of literature. And so it was good, but it also um, made me wonder if church really was the place for me because I saw a lot of open-mindedness and willing to explore among my classmates. And that wasn't always what I saw from people within the church. And so I just didn't know if that was the environment I wanted to be in. I also didn't know if I wanted to be to carry the the expectations that go with being a pastor. A lot of people have certain stereotypes or things they assume about people who are in ministry. And I didn't know if I wanted to be sort of pigeonholed that way. And so I wasn't really sure what to do, but there's uh, nothing really to do with a BA in religious studies except go to more school. So then I, I went to um, end of undergrad. I decided to go to, to Duke Divinity School to do... Um, a master of divinity program and really just to see where that would take me um you know i i say that that was probably the most ignorant decision of my life because i didn't i didn't know research i, I didn't know what i like i didn't know anything about the program i didn't know anything about the faculty i didn't visit the school until the night before i about the first day of class but it was absolutely the right place for me and in my formation there um, sort of helped restore my my faith in the church, to see beauty in the church, um, to, to accept and understand that that's what I was gifted to do. And um, yeah, that's that 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 experience, those those three years there sort of, I think, 
shaped and formed the kind of ministry uh, that I wanted to do. So I, I went to, um, from there, I served in, uh, my wife and I got married right, right after I finished divinity school. Uh, we lived in England for a year. I served three Methodist churches in England and came back to the U.S. I served um, First Christian Church in Alexandria, Virginia, right outside of D.C. for seven years. Uh, and then we came back to North Carolina, both of us being from North Carolina, all of our families are here. So, <clears throat> so we came back home, uh, with our, with our kids, uh, as they were, before they were starting school and, um, been serving Covenant Christian Church in Cary, uh, which is in the triangle right outside of Raleigh, which is the state capital. Um, that's over seven years now. So, yeah, so that brings, uh sort of the, the, the thumbnail sketch of uh, what brings us to this point. And so you mentioned when you were first going to UNC that you were kind of surrounded by open-mindedness and you mm -hmm. weren't necessarily seeing that in mm -hmm. the church. So how has mm -hmm. that changed? Because to write a book um, about deconstructing your privilege, I think mm -hmm. that's definitely mm -hmm. an open-minded viewpoint. Yeah, I mean, I... For me, you know, there were um, the very first class I took at, at Carolina um, was the introduction to the New Testament with a New Testament scholar named Bart Ehrman, who's, you know, he's sort of church nerd famous, you know, uh, as a uh, person who has written plenty about the New Testament, but he's not a person of faith. He's he's an agnostic. And so it was one of those big uh, freshman uh, lecture um, classes with you know, 300 people in an auditorium. And um, he's laying out all of these things that were challenges to things that, you know, uh, anybody who was in the room who had grown up as a person of faith, um, you know, if you wanted, so for my mind, if you wanted to, I just sort of decided, I think, facing the things that he was bringing to us about this formation of the New Testament and um you know uh different issues with its formation and and doubts that we have about who wrote what and etc um that if 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 i didn't if i couldn't reconcile myself to those questions then i didn't really have a faith i could stand on so um you know i saw a lot of my classmates who sort of uh, didn't want to deal with those questions. You know, they shut they shut that out. They didn't want they didn't want to hear, um, and spent time belittling him. But but what I saw, and actually it was amazing. You know, the last day of class, um, you know, he spent the the time, you know, telling us his story about how he how his faith evolved and to where he stands now. And you know, you go to his office hours, and he would sit with like not an English translation of the New Testament, but the Greek actual Greek. New Testament. And it's like, you know, this guy knows what he's doing. He's spent a lot of time thinking about this. He's educated himself. Like he's able to stand in front of us, you know, 318 year olds who think they know everything and articulate his story. And I didn't think there was anybody in the room who could have done the same thing with the same kind of, um, you know, having done the same kind of search, you know, that he had done. So, um, so that was really sort of the way I made up my mind to go about my education. But then at the same time, I saw things happening in the church um, that really disappointed me. Um, this debate broke out, um, not just in my congregation, but in um, 
surrounding congregations about the inclusion of LGBTQ people in the church. Um, and there were people that I had, you know, known and loved and looked up to for years growing up in the church who had very disappointing viewpoints on that, that I was surprised and disappointed by. And, um, you know, 9-11 happened and we had this whole, um, you know, there was this friction around, you know, uh, how much, how much America are we really, is really should be introduced into our Christian faith and in our Christian worship. And, um, again, I saw a lot of people who just really weren't willing to consider an alternative viewpoint to theirs. Um, and I didn't want to be in an environment like that. Um, and so what changed, I think for me, accepting uh, people will disappoint you. I mean, that's, that's true of, of just human relationships, right? I mean, people will disappoint you and, and you will disappoint other people. You know, we're not perfect. We're going to let each other down occasionally. Um, and that doesn't make, um, you know, those people all one thing or another, you know, they're not that disappointment, you know, it's just that they're not perfect. And so, you know, we have to accept that. And I think for me, what helped me was when I, when I was in divinity school, I actually went back to my home church as a, as an intern, right. As the, as a person who was there to learn ministry from the pastors. And, you know, I was, um, I got to participate in all kinds of things. You know, I helped dedicate a baby for, you know, uh, that was the first child of somebody I was in youth group with. I got to, I was in the room when one of the sort of the matriarchs of the church died. You know, I got to participate in weddings and funerals and you see the beauty of being in relationship with people over a course of time and uh, how meaningful that is. And so, you know, it's not all, um, definitely there's, uh, struggle uh when it comes to reconciling differences in within a within a body of people um but there's a lot of beauty in being in relationship with each other and um having deep friendships formed over time and so um yeah it was just kind of coming to a sort of peace with that i guess was your home church one of those that was accepting or were they less accepting of your new mindsets after, you know, kind of realizing there were other viewpoints? Yeah, well, see, I, I come from, um, I come from the tradition I come from is a Protestant denomination called um, the Christian Church Disciples of Christ. Um, and its origins are, as well, most Protestant denominations are, uh, uh, set out to like restore the New Testament church, right? We're going to get back to the basics. And uh, the idea was that there would, should be one Christian church. We should be disciples of Christ and not Baptist, Methodist, Presbyterians, you know. Um, the, the irony, of course, is that it turned into its own denomination when it was trying not to be a denomination. But um, the idea is that, you know, that, that we, um, that we can hold differences you know, we find oneness, we find our uh, unity in the in in believing that Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior, and practice charity. You know, and everything else when when we differ. So, in any disciple congregation, usually you're going to find spectrum. You know, you'll find people who are, um, you know, who are more conservative. You'll find people who are more progressive. Um, 
And sometimes until you really face a question, you know, that you have to answer about um, something that's divisive, you may not know where each other, um, where each other sits or, you know, or, or it is on that particular question. So, uh, so there was both, you know, there was both uh, reactions to that. And I think for me, um, I mean, I think it's somewhat, it's a generational thing. I think, you know, I'm, uh, I'm one, of, I'm 1980. So I'm like, nobody, no, none of the generational things claim I'm not Gen X, but I'm not a millennial. It's like, we're, we're our own people, but, uh, you know, we've, we're not as hung up on this question as uh, for the most part, as you know, our parents and grandparents were. And so to me, it was like, I, this seems like, why, why, why are you all debating this? You know, and then some people who, who said, you know, who were very strongly against it. And I was like, I don't, I don't understand that because, you know, I'm on a camp, a very progressive campus, right. Of, you know, the 15,000 undergrads or whatever. And, uh, you know, there's everything under the sun, you know, it, in that, in that environment. So it was just that contrast, right. Of a very open explorative time for me in a community that's built for that. And then the contrast of a church that seemed, sort of, uh, you know, so certain people within the church that seemed set on, you know, their viewpoint. And that was it, you know. It was just a divisive time, I think is the way to say it. Right. So then when you first started out um, after schooling, getting mm -hmm. into serving, were you... Because you you've been through a few different systems, were mm -hmm. you in inclusive churches, and were you in spaces that you were able to like kind of continue that mindset? Uh, yes and no. I mean, so um, well, when I went to England, I mean that was really a uh, unique scenario in the sense that I, I didn't have one congregation but three. And I was only there for a year, and that's barely enough time to to get to know three congregations. It isn't actually time enough to get to know three congregations. So you, you don't really have I mean you can't you can't push people in an area where they might be uncomfortable if you don't <clears throat> know them if they don't trust you. So you have to be able to establish trust before you can really, you know, challenge people. And um so I wouldn't say it was anything I really took up when I was there. When I came um, to the church in Alexandria, um, you know, it was something that was part of, you know, when I had opportunities from the pulpit, I was clear about um, about where I was. You know, we had over the course of time, we had LGBTQ staff there um, in our, um, you know, we had LGBTQ folks who came and were part of the congregation. So it wasn't a... Um, you know, I, I would, I would, you know, they're definitely, you know, the, it's a whole, it's a whole other thing about how churches, how churches voice their openness and their uh, affirmation of the LGBTQ community. But um, it definitely wasn't a closed um, space as far as that goes. And then at Covenant, um, where I am now, that's very much been part of the church's um, DNA since its beginning. It's, uh, we just turned 35. So when I got there, there were LGBTQ folks, you know, there in lay leadership, you know, part of the congregation. It's been sort of a, um, a stated part of the, the church's um, 
identity from from the get-go so um that doesn't mean that everybody there is in the same place like i said but um um it is something it is it is a place where i have freedom to say you know what i think uh what i believe and encourage people to think about those same questions um and uh yeah and we can tolerate that i guess is the way to say it right so it's it's a place where you know you're not having to hold back and it's okay um with those in the congregation so do you think that the intersectionality between faith and sexuality is like why is it so prevalent um when we think about faith that is a great question and i don't i don't uh i i don't i can't say i particularly know the answer to that um well i will there's not i don't think just one answer to that i guess is um is the way to say it i mean for sure, the church has been, especially recently, preoccupied with this question. And um, I mean, one of the things that I write about in the book is that it's a, um, you know, it's it's very disproportionately focused on when you consider, you know, the texts that address um, uh, sex between people of the same genitals. Um, you know, at all uh, in in the text, and I I don't, um, you know, part of it is if it's it's about power, um, because if I am in the majority, then I can sort of uh, decide what we focus on, right? What the agenda is. There are far more, far 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 more teachings in the Bible about the accumulation of wealth, right? Um, but uh, um, I'd prefer we not f- focus on that, right? If I'm a person who comes from from wealth and privilege, right? Like, let's let's uh, let's deal with these other texts uh, first and talk about these other um, these other things instead of the stuff that um, hits a little too close to, to my home. So um, I think that's part of it. You know, when you're in the majority, um, you can um, you, you know you can choose to fixate on. On, on what the minority, how the minority needs to conform to whatever norms you've decided are are right, and um, and we so we do have this outsized. Um, I mean, some of it is just also a basic prejudice against what you don't understand or what you don't, you know, uh, agree with, uh, or that you don't. I guess you don't understand is the right word, and that you don't identify with is maybe the the right way to say it also and then you know i I think people of faith have um often made a uh, an exercise out of you know sort of focusing on on thing on one aspect of someone's identity um when you know none of us would i don't think many many of us would would talk about our sexual orientation as like the defining characteristics of who we are as a person Right. If you're, you know, a straight cisgendered person, you know, that's you would talk about all kinds of other things about yourself before you listed that as like the thing that defines you. So why we would choose that as like a defining characteristic for someone 
just because we devi- they devi- quote unquote deviate from what we quote unquote feel is normal um is is just um not right to me it's sinful um i think that's um and that's part part of the book is pointing that trying to point that out and trying to say look like you know this is um you know we're doing harm actually with this and um it's not it's not in keeping with what you know the whole of the biblical narrative and um the kind of god that's described in that biblical narrative um uh teaches us about how to be as people as a community and so um it's time to move on um you know i i you know we i don't know why you know churches have these debates i've been part of like you know church bodies having these debates these questions about what are we going to do what are we going to do and I just sit there and think, you know, imagine, imagine being part of the subject of a conversation like that, you know, just to have to sit in a room and listen to people debate your personhood. Um, and I, to me, the fact that there are any LGBTQ Christians is, uh, is nothing but, uh, a miracle because, uh, you know, the fact that there's grace enough for them to. To belong to a body that has so often done that to me is amazing. Yeah, it's it's a hard way to, you know, kind of see it from your side where it's like, we want you to belong, but then yeah. we also see that there are so many people trying to not let you belong. Well, right, or we, we want you to belong, but uh, you're welcome here. Um, but this particular aspect of your life is something that we don't agree with and don't support and actually it, in some community some communities will say you know we're, we're welcome anyone and that's fine they're happy to have you there they're happy to have you attending giving um but if it comes to you know being in leadership or uh, having your wedding officiated in that community or um any of those things, then all, you know, it becomes a problem. Um, and so, yeah, I think clarity is, is important. You know, I think there's a lot of churches that aren't, that aren't clear in what they, what they say and what they think. And then, you know, churches give off a vibe of being welcoming, but then when it comes down to it, you know, it ends up being harmful and, you know, that hurts everyone. Yeah. And I think when you described the church that you're at now, you, you said that like, the welcomingness and like welcoming people of uh, the LGBTQ community has like been in the DNA since mm-hmm. the beginning. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of that, that exact difference that you're talking about. It is. But I think, you know, the thing about, it, you know, we're all, I mean, no matter how open-minded you want to be or how affirming of people you want to be, we've all been shaped by, by patriarchal norms, by heteronormativity, um, you know, um, and also our understanding of of sex and gender is constantly evolving. You know, I mean, we're constantly learning more about about gender identity as a concept and you know, what that means, and and um, you know, uh sexual orientation actually is a fairly recent construct, you know, of, 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 for human beings to think about. So, um, 
it's, it's something we're constantly, uh, you know, evolving in our thought of. So a church can't, I, to my mind, a church can't say, okay, well, we, we've decided we're going to be open, right? Because if you don't continue to engage and think about, okay, well, what does it mean to, for us to affirm the LGBTQ community? What kind of community do we have to be so that we don't do harm? Because, you know, there's the intention that you have, and then there's the practical effect of, how your community is structured and what kind of practices you have and who's welcome in leadership and the language that you use and all of those things that, that are what really make the difference. So, so for us, I, I mean, I, I try to, um, you know, we're actually in the, in the process of looking again at our, at our statements of belief and, and statement of calling, which are kind of our guiding, you know, documents, um, to see if we can be more clear, and more specific in our welcome because um so the, and the challenge is to say what you to say in those documents what you mean and then be intentional about living into them which is like sort of an ongoing process yeah so it's like you, you know those norms are so are so imprinted on us and so strong that we're always going to have to be at work working on those things to see them and understand them when they're um uh, you know, when they pop up. Um, right. Now, the book that mm -hmm. you wrote, and like when you look at it, the title right there, the main title, Straight White Male, is in big, big bold print. <laughs> um, <laughs> the subtitle is not nearly as obvious, um, yeah. but also quite as important. So can you talk yeah. a little bit about... Uh, coming to to writing the book making the decision uh to yeah. do this well we're in this moment of of sort of cultural reckoning on some of these issues you know um uh me too has given us an opportunity to think about uh patriarchy and patterns of violence against women and inequality um between men and women uh, of course, Black Lives Matter and the many uh, very visual um, experiences that we have had of, you know, institutional racism sort of on display um, have have given all, all of us an opportunity to face those realities in our culture. And I think when you're on when you're on the other side of that when you identify when your identity is is of the ones who have done harm then that uh creates an internal struggle and i have to decide if i'm going to really look uh, within myself at what work i need to do within myself and in my own life or if I'm going to retreat uh, sort of in, you know, even further into that, I think we're seeing that some as a culture, you know, folks are saying, well, you're, you know, uh, you're seeing that. I think we're seeing this right now in the conversation around critical race theory. Like, well, you're trying to make us ashamed to be white and we're going to, you know, we're going to retreat even further into our whiteness. Right. Or, um, you know, you're trying to redefine masculinity and we're going to, push even further just to define, you know, masculinity in this, in this traditional way. And, um, so you can't ask I me, mean, my sort of my thought in the back of my mind all along is that you can't ask people to take on new habits 
Well, you, you, most people don't leave behind old habits until they're given new ones to take up. Most people don't leave behind an old reality because it's hard. It's hard that that deconstructing uh, that that term that's there in the subtitle is it's hard work, and there's a grief involved, and there's um, you know um, uh, grief involved in, in the things that you've done, the things that you've said, the things, the ways that you've behaved, the things that have happened in the past, facing history. I mean, all that's hard. Um, and so the alternative is to, is to not do that work. Right? And then we just we just perpetuate, you know, what has always been. This generation becomes like every other generation before it when we've had this reckoning and we haven't gone all the way, you know, to, to sort of set right some of the things that um, uh, that have been wrong. So, so really the book was born out of the conversations, you know, I mean, I know that there's some people who will take one look at the title of the book and want nothing to do with it. Understand that, um, you know, I don't, I don't, uh, I don't have any illusions about that. I, but I also have been part of conversations with people who are looking around and they understand that that things are changing and that um. They need, you know, they want to be sensitive to what is happening. They want to be under, understanding of what is happening. They want to be good men. Uh, you know, they, they want to be uh, um, supportive of the struggle for racial justice. But they don't know how to be themselves and be part of that. So that what does it mean for me uh, if in this, er- in this era, what does it mean to be white in a redemptive way? How do I carry my white skin in this world? How do I carry my identity as a man in this world? Um, uh, in a straight man in this world. And so trying to give folks the tools to, to think about that uh, in a productive way, because um, it's, it's, a lot, it's, it's a lot easier to point out the problems than it is to articulate like the new, ha- new habits, new ways you can uh, so I try to do that the way the book is structured, just sort of lay out like, look, this is the way our understanding of masculinity, for example, has been harmful to us as men and to women. And here are some ways to wear your 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 masculinity in a more redemptive way. Um, and so um, trying to give some some practical um, ways of thinking about that uh, as part of it. So it's really aimed at, I think, those people who are who are struggling, they, they see, they realize that something's happening. They, they know that it's asking something of them, but they're not sure what next. Um, that's my hope for it, at least. And what about when, like, you know, obviously, like, kind of the three defining factors of being straight, being white, being a male. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, there are people, obviously, like, I am not a male. I don't have mm-hmm. that privilege. Mm-hmm. Uh, so when your privilege is at a different level, mm-hmm. um, is it kind of the similar similar mindsets and similar sort of things that people should be taking um, in deconstructing their own privilege? Mm-hmm. Well, we all have. I mean, many of us have privilege of one sort or sort sort or another, um, and that that word is is really. Uh, uh, I, I knew and I'm learning even more that people really recoil at that word. They really struggle with that word privilege. And and part of that is because we live in a culture that prizes like, you know, 
um, working for things like, you know, you, you, you have what you have, you worked for. And if you want something, you got to work for it and nothing's given out for free. And so for you to imply that, that part of my success is, um, is not, not because I worked for it. Um, then I, I don't meet that cultural ideal that we have. Right. Um, but you know, there's all, there are all kinds of, of, um, of advantages, you know, as a white woman, you know, uh, um, you know, the, the statistics of violence against women are bad, but the statistics of violence against indigenous women are even worse. Right. So that tells you, you know, that there's some, um, there's some differences that are made uh, along the way. And I mean, you can articulate them in, in all kinds of different ways. I mean, um, you know, someone who um, came from a, uh, who received a, a world-class education um, has, has an advantage over, you know, someone who, who didn't have that opportunity. And so, but it, getting to the point of accepting that not everything I have is something that I worked for, right? Like some, like, you know, I get the benefit of the doubt because of my skin, because of my gender identity, because of my sexuality, there's certain things I don't have to struggle for. Um, like nobody, I, I can walk into a church and I don't have to wonder if, if I'm going to be welcome, if I could be a leader, I don't, if I could, you know, there's, there's advantage in that. Like I, you know, I don't have to wonder if my voice can be heard. Um, and so if you can get to the point of acknowledging that I have certain privileges here that, I mean, you know, I didn't earn, right. Then, um, then, then you, then the, the next question is what's my responsibility now? Um, if I have privilege, I didn't earn, you know, is it to, to help others, to use the advantage that I have to, to help others who didn't have that advantage? I, I mean, I think if you're a person of faith, the answer to that question is yes. But then I think a deeper question is, if I have this advantage, why? Why is it like this? Should it be like this? Is it moral for it to be like this? And um, to realize that actually, even though it's benefited me, it's probably not good, right? So that means that, you know, I have to also maybe be part of making sure that, like, you know, just because you're a man, you don't have certain privilege, right? Even though it's kind of nice sometimes, right? You're undoing the things that make your life easier. Um, but I think that's part of um, it's the last part of that subtitle, living with integrity, right? I want to I want to live a just life. I want to live the life that that I think Jesus calls me to. Um, and, you know, Jesus asks that of people all the time, you know, uh, people come to him and say, I want to follow you. And he says, okay, we'll sell everything you have, give it to the poor, take your, take your privilege, take your advantage, liquidate it, and then you can come. And, you know, that's, that's really hard, but that's what Jesus asks. So, um, you know, to me, it's part of the equation. Yeah. Now, while you've been doing all of this work and kind of, you know, expanding your horizons and, you know, deconstructing your own privilege, you mentioned that you have a wife and children. Mm -hmm. So what has it been like 
for them uh, while you've been on this this path? Well, I think, um, you know, I mean, my wife and I, I mean, part of the reason that we're a match and, and married is that we have um, similar, int- similar feelings about, um, you know, um, justice in the world and um, care for people who have been marginalized and you know, I think we've, um, as you grow, as you mature, as you have life experiences, as the world changes, which it certainly has, and especially as I would say the last 10 years or so, you know, you figure out who you are in that world and, and what to believe. And then when you introduce children to it, and I write some about this in the book, uh, it really highlights how those norms are imprinted on you. Um, because you start to impose certain expectations, you know, on your children for, I have both of my children are boys. Um, and so, you know, uh, before they were born, you know, we had, um, people were buying them stuff with trucks on them and balls on them. And, you know, all of those things that like you associate with like, well, I mean, that's, you know, they're little boys. That's what they're going to enjoy. Right. And then, you know, and then as they grow and they start to to um, take on their own interests, right, you start to analyze, you know, or pay attention to, OK, well, what does this mean, you know, about who? I mean, I, I'm a huge sports person. Uh, my oldest son could take it or leave it. Right. And so you, as a as a dad, you like build up in your mind that this is going to be something that you're having you have in common. And then if you don't. um you know, you have to examine your own feelings about that. I mean, intellectually, I know that that's, that that's, you know, a ridiculous sort of expectation to have, but it's still there in my spirit. So I have to, I have to probe that, I have to examine that, you know, and I have to think about like what kind of values, you know, I want to impress upon, upon them, you know, with, um, you know, so, you know, if you hear, well, that's for girls, you know, why, why do you say that? Um, well, you know, and then you, you try to, I try to take them back to the point of saying, well, there's, there is no real reason that you're saying that. Like, there's no, no, nobody, nobody decided that. Like, it's, you know, <laughs> there's, there's no truth in that. It's just, you know, sort of cultural expectation. So trying to, I mean, the other part of it is like trying to, to model a certain kind of masculinity that's healthy, you know, for them since, um, such a, I think, big part of how they're socialized and whatnot. So. So it's interesting that we have certain conversations about about things, about stuff that's happening in the world. They have a, a keen sense of it. Um, they understand, uh, uh, you know, uh, these cultural conversations that are happening, you know, at a at an age appropriate uh, level, um, and you know, just try to um, you know share where we are and. Hopefully, you know, they they do their own thinking and exploring in those areas, too. Um, yeah, my oldest is uh, about to be a teenager. I'm interested to see how he processes. He's old enough to read the book, I would say. And so I'm interested to see how he uh, he processes it. So be interesting. Yeah, definitely. 
Is there anything else that you would like to share with the listeners before I start to wrap things up? Well, I would just say, you know, part of, um, I think one, one aspect of publishing a book like, like this is that, you, you know, yet the temptation is to look at the book and say, well, that's, I'm not that, so it's not for me. Um, so, or I don't have all three of those. I don't check all three of those boxes, so it's not for me. Um, I would say that's, that's, I don't think that's the case. I think um, um, that uh, one of the things that I've found um, and discovered, uh, I guess, is that it's, you know, um, it can be really healing to hear things that you've experienced articulated. And that's why confessional is such a part of the, the book is to say, look, this is why this is the reality of how you know, patriarchy has affected women. This is the reality of what whiteness has done to people of color in this country. Um, these are the statistics of what's debating um, issues of sex and gender due to the mental health of the LGBTQ community. And hearing those, having those things acknowledged, I think is important because part of the defense of patriarchal white supremacy is is gaslighting right well it's not you know racism's over like there's not you know that's there's not a people aren't, aren't racist anymore there's no prejudice there's no real prejudice you know it's just time to get over that and and so um so sort of denying that truth and so i think um having that articulate i mean i've heard had people say to me and this is not i'm not it's not something i would i'm not lifting myself up as virtuous because of this because i don't think it's virtuous to tell the truth but um, I've had people say, well, I've never heard someone who looks like you say what you're saying. And uh, it's really important to them for them to hear that. And like I said, I don't take credit for that, but I, I didn't understand that that was the importance of that. So I would say that. And the other piece of it is that I do have four contributors to the book. Um, and we sort of uh, isolated the variable with three of them. So one of them is, is straight and male, but not white. One of them is white and and straight, but not a man. Um, and uh, white and a man, but not straight, and on and on. Um, so they sort of address things from that perspective and talk about um, where they do have some privilege because of the certain identities they carry and then what not being those things has cost them. And then we have a fourth contributor uh, Dr. Robbins, uh, Robin Henderson Espinoza, um, who is a trans uh, Latinx uh, scholar um, who sort of writes about intersectionality. And, um, so their contributions are part of the book, too. And so I would just say uh, I really tried to, to make it a book for everyone. And I hope it's, it's something that uh, people can find meaning in, even if you're not a person of faith, even if you're... Um, uh, in, in various places along this journey of this um, discerning, you know, where you are on, on these conversations that um, hopefully there's something for everyone. Yeah, and I, I appreciate that you mentioned uh, the additional contributors, because I, I do think that brings a lot of value to the book. Now, with all of my guests at the end of every episode, I do ask a random question. So in this season of the Super Bowl. Uh-huh. I, I'm not actually going to ask you about football. I am going to ask, <laughs> what is the best commercial you've ever seen? Oh, my gosh. 
Well, I'll, um, I'll tell you my favorite commercials right now are the, I don't even know who their commercials for, but it's, it's the guy who is like, uh, schooling people on not becoming their parents, uh, you know, and they're like, takes them to the mall and like, you know, uh, you ever wonder what the, what's, uh, what's the overhead is on a place like this? And it's like, no, no, no one, no one that, you know, sort of things that your parents say. Uh, and I was just actually laughing about this. This came on. I was with my parents this weekend and it came on and I was like, you know, my sister and I text each other every time these commercials are on because there's one of these that apply to each of you. Like, uh, you know, things that your, that your parents say, uh, how not to turn into your parents. So obviously that one has stuck with me, although I can't identify the advertiser. I think it's an insurance company or something. But yeah, that one's, those are really good. I like those. All right, that brings this episode to a close. I will be leaving a link to pre-order Chris's book in the description along with a link that'll bring you directly to his Twitter. So that is the best way to get in touch with him right now as he's working on getting a website up and running. And of course, if you'd like to connect with the podcast, our website is in the description, which brings you to all of our social media, Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn, and a link to donate to the podcast is also in the description if you'd like to support us monetarily and my email is there as well if you'd like to be a guest or have any comments questions concerns i always love hearing from people so feel free to email me so thank you so much chris for spending time with me today and to my listeners for taking the time out of your day to hear a new story until next week bye bye all